Many people, when they hear Alzheimer's disease, think it's memory problems. I prefer to think of it as a cluster of thinking problems. Hi, I'm Bobby, a certified caregiving consultant and educator. I work one-on-one -on -one with caregivers to help them find solutions that work for them to the often confusing behaviors that come with a dementia diagnosis. And I'm her husband, Mike, and I'm a certified caregiver advocate and a certified music therapist. And I work with some memory care facilities in their music and memory program. And this is Roger That, the podcast dedicated to guiding you through the haze of dementia. Our goal is to focus on the caregiver, offer some practical insights, and share some emotional support. And maybe we'll share a laugh or two, because we all know that laughter is the best medicine. Don't forget the wine, Mike. Nope. Won't forget <laughs> your wine. You know I won't. You know, whenever my dad had a doctor's appointment and or was in the hospital itself, it was always very stressful, not only for him, but possibly even more so for you as the primary caregiver? Well, the problem with the hospital admissions is that so much would go wrong while he was in there. I mean, he had dysphagia, he had COPD, he had stubborn old Italian disease, what? Um, you know, and, and I would <laughs> give them very careful instructions. And of course, it was in his file that he had to have thickened liquids and, and food pureed and be monitored when he ate, and they would bring him food that he couldn't swallow. They would bring him water and a straw that he couldn't have. They, they would listen to him about his medications rather than what he was supposed to have. So it was very clear that when he was admitted, basically I was admitted too. I would go first thing in the morning and I would stay until after he was asleep at night because he could not be left alone. And, you know, they have hundreds of patients. I had one and I was there to make sure that he got the best possible care that he could. But not everybody can do that. That brings us to today's guest, who is owner and principal in Splain Consulting, a small advocacy and government affairs consulting firm based in Washington, D.C., Immediately prior to starting this company, Mike was the Director of State Government Affairs in the Public Policy Division of the U.S. Alzheimer's Association, where he enjoyed a 23-year career. He is also a consultant to the U.S. Alzheimer's Association CDC Healthy Brain Initiative. We are so pleased to welcome Mike Splain. Mike, thank you so much for being with us. We know that we and our listeners are going to learn a lot from you. Thank you. It's um you know, this is this area of hospitalization is surprisingly under resourced by some of the main Alzheimer groups provide very little guidance for what is a very common experience because most people living with Alzheimer's disease or other dementia have other chronic conditions. Probably three quarters of people with Alzheimer's in the United States have other chronic conditions. They're at risk of hospitalization and uh, elders with Alzheimer's and other chronic conditions have three times more hospitalizations than elders that don't have Alzheimer's disease. So, you know, the, 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 translating these facts, this is a common occurrence and it's a common caregiver story, but it's one that for which there's not an awful lot of preparation because, let's face it, nobody goes to the hospital because they're getting acute care treatment of their Alzheimer's. They're going to the hospital because they fell. They're going to the hospital because they, they've changed their eating 
radically. They're going to the hospital because their diabetes is out of control. They're not going to the hospital for Alzheimer's treatment. You know, it's interesting. You said a second ago that um, the hospitals are understaffed when it comes to the Alzheimer's or dementia treatment, but they're understaffed across the board. I know our daughter-in-law is a nurse, a registered nurse. And I mean, they, they grind her to the bone because of understaffing and she's in the cath lab. So I can't tell you how exhausted she is all the time because they're so understaffed and they're so overworked. Yeah, I think I, I think the post-COVID hospital is even more stressed and understaffed. And there are lots of indications that nurses with 25 years or more experience have left the hospital service in droves, uh, leaving them in an even more difficult situation. Which again, then how does it fall back on the caregiver to backfill? And during COVID, family members weren't allowed in the hospital with their dementia carry. So that made it even more likely that something is going to go wrong. And, and for very necessary reasons. But yes, that is one of the stories, the less told stories about the impact of COVID. You know, I'm a firm believer and there should be a designated caregiver that you know, is given all of the protective equipment that they need, who can go in there and interpret for the person with Alzheimer's because they can't make their own decisions. And they say things that they certainly believe is true. But one of the things Mike's dad used to say, go take care of the sick people, I can take care of myself. And if you've got several patients clamoring for your attention and you've got one that says he's okay, he may or may not get the care that he needs. This is a really important point. Many people, when they hear Alzheimer's disease, think it's memory problems. I prefer to think of it as a cluster of thinking problems. And one of the things that you've just pointed out, and we know people with Alzheimer's or other dementia have problems with language. They have problems with perception. One of my scientist friends says, you know, your eye is just your brain in a different format. And there's a lot of science going into test using eye tests as a way to identify people living with Alzheimer's disease. People with Alzheimer's disease have uh, movement disorders. They have uh, there's just a cluster. Judgment is impaired. Reasoning, the ability to organize and uh, get through simple tasks, which is all of aftercare in the hospital, all of these thinking problems. It's not just memory and uh, putting up a memory board and yelling louder. (laughs) Exactly. You know, I saw something recently where the description of Alzheimer's was related to your eyesight. And he says, you know, normally you see in technicolor, right? You see all these beautiful colors and everything. The Alzheimer's patient or the dementia patient's brain is like that eyesight black, white, and gray, and there's more gray than black and white, and it's blurry. And I thought, wow, that's a, that's a phenomenal description. Oh, it might be. So yeah. I think the, the fast-moving, hypercognitive environment of a hospital and the fact that, you know, there are so few planned admissions, uh, probably, you know, a quarter of hospitalizations of people with dementia in the United States are planned. So somebody, and and that means the other three quarters are coming in through the emergency department, 
in some kind of a crisis uh, with some kind of existing stress. But even in a planned admission, I think there are things that caregivers can do. So we, we teach a workshop online and offline called Thoughtful Hospitalization. So we start with what are some fundamentals that everybody can do to be better prepared in case of a hospitalization? Uh, and we think there are three of them. One is I, for 20 years or more, I've been encouraging caregivers to get a notebook. It's a, it cost you a buck 19, maybe a dollar 25 with a pen and sales tax. And it is one of the best tools that caregivers can have. My wife and I had the privilege and the burden of taking care of my dad's sister, Betty, for the last two years of her life. And I filled up five notebooks, taking care of one little five foot one, 82 year old lady. And I remember one day she scowled at me and she said, what are you writing in that damn thing anyway? And I said, <laughs> everything on Betty, everything. Uh, the other thing about a notebook and don't laugh out loud, but it changes the dynamic with the medical providers. If you're coming prepared with a notebook, with your questions, your drug list, maybe some prior medical history in there, you're taking notes, they have to slow down. And, and in fact, it's, it's a showstopper for, particularly for physicians and hospitalists that are just used to rattling stuff off that is all kinds of strange words in it, concepts I might not understand. When you have a notebook, it changes the conversation. Um, I also, if I were the king of the universe, when people get their driver's license for the first time, I'd have them do advanced directives and put them in a public file. Uh, but it's kind of inexcusable that any uh, adult in this culture over the age of 50 doesn't have some form of advanced medical directives that are up to date and known. It's one thing to have them. Oh, yeah, dad has a durable power of attorney for healthcare somewhere. It's another thing that they need to be known. So these are just basic prep things that anybody can do in the case of an emergency hospitalization or even a planned hospitalization. I will tell you increasingly with medical records and with a lot of effort from Medicare, uh, the percentage of Medicare beneficiaries who have advanced care planning directives and have them in their electronic or otherwise medical record has gone up steadily over the last four or five years. It's a real effort to get there. I was in the doctor's office for an annual checkup and they asked me if I had the advanced medical directive. And I looked at her and I said, you only ask that of old people. And she said, no, we ask that of everybody because you never know what's going to happen. You could have a car accident or whatever. And one sure. of the things I tell people is we're all fine until we're not, and we never know when that not is coming. So that's a good reminder to everybody. Well, it, there are a couple of health insurers, and I'm not going to name names because that's not that kind of show, um, that where that's become a standard of practice. And they actually secret shop their provider networks to see if every adult gets asked about uh, advanced medical directives. It's kind of like going to being a person of a certain age and going to a airport bar and being carted and pulling out grand grandkid pictures because, you know, really? You wanna, I'm 68 years old and I need to get carted? It's that universality of it that's important. So, yeah, I think advanced medical directives. Uh, uh, but another, uh, another advanced prep um, that I think could help in case of a hospitalization is having medical information available. We encourage people to look at something called, for example, the vial of life. 
it's a simple program where people have a basic medical record, a medications list, and they literally put it in the freezer or some other place in their home. And they, they have stickers. Uh, they have stickers on the, not unlike what the fire department will give you if you have somebody who's wheelchair bound uh, on a second floor that needs to be evacuated. In case of an emergency, uh, this vial of life uh, the stickers allow the emergency medical personnel to look for it. So I think file of life is one way, uh, but medical alert bracelets and medallions are where emergency medical people look first for important medical information. I have a kidney transplant and a pacemaker, so I jingle a lot and I have a lot of fun going through airports, but I tell you, it's right. This is where emergency medical people are going to look. One other thought, increasingly, you mentioned smartphones, increasingly, there is an app called ICE in case of emergency. And there's both the free version and then an upgrade to a paid version. But even the free version allows you to store on your phone in case of emergency contact information, medical information, drug list, some basic information, and increasingly in case of emergency. And in case the caregiver can't be there or the person is living without a caregiver, uh, ICE on a smartphone with that basic information can be another basic prep uh, that can have people have a more thoughtful hospitalization. That's interesting. Uh, on my phone where I have my, my husband's name and my daughter's name, right after that, it, I have ICE in case of emergency. So, you know, something happens, somebody picks up my phone, they will see that these are the two people to call. Yeah, it's some of the basic prep that people can do. It's interesting that you said, you know, keep a notebook. We had two spiral notebooks. Well, I shouldn't say we. Bobby had two spiral <laughs> notebooks. One was all the medical information, and then there was uh, a log of other things. Um. <laughs> I had him sign for his meals because they often insisted he hadn't eaten, you know, and we would write down what he ate and have him sign for it. And he also tracked his bowel movements because he would tell the doctors that he hadn't had one in months or weeks and they would be horrified. And I'd say, well, no, we know we did this on this day. That's what Mike was hesitating to talk about. <laughs> but but, um, but yeah. she, she had both, both books and she also had a go bag. So it, in case of emergency, all she had to do was grab the notebook and grab the bag in the car and go. And it was a tremendous help, except for the times that I took them to the hospital and I didn't grab the go bag. <laughs> well, I kept it in my car. I was always yeah. in my car. I think a go bag is a great idea. And in fact, uh, for people who come to our thoughtful hospitalization workshop, if they do the uh, the evaluation, we actually send them a starter go bag, uh, caregiver self-care bag uh, is our way of saying thank you for coming to our workshop. So that's that we, we get that. Absolutely. In a case of a plan, but knowing who the hospital team is, I think is important. And, and starting with an intake worker or the clerk who's going to take basic information, things can break down. What do I mean by that? In the case of a planned admission, these intake personnel are trained to call the home and gather medical information from the patient. Mm -hmm. 
and and people with impaired judgment, memory, and uh, maybe you know difficulties with thinking that come along with dementia on the phone giving medical information, they may not be a very good medical informant either as they get admitted through the emergency department or as they get admitted for a planned admission. So knowing that in case of a hospitalization, the first person you're going to come in contact with is somebody that's sweeping up the paperwork is really important. Um, Another thing for families to think about is information doesn't necessarily move despite all the medical records and everything else, information doesn't move from care setting to care setting. And frequently in a case of people that are being cared for in a residential care community, the barest of information, let alone a staff person, follow that person to the emergency room uh, if in in fact they're sent to the emergency room because they've had a fall or because they're they're desperately ill. Information doesn't flow among and through providers. And even within providers, you need to be prepared for the fact that the emergency department collection of information might not make it to the floor. So the the third person that you need to be prepared as part of the team is the hospitalist. The hospitalist is the doctor who is your doctor while you're in the hospital. No longer will your doctor follow you while you're in the hospital. There is this ultra-specialized practice. Uh, This is the doctor that's supposedly coordinating specialists, tests, information. And families tell me all the time that they constantly want to mess with the drug list. Mm -hmm. And particularly skeptical of whether or not anti-dementia drugs are effective and frequently write orders to discontinue them. Now, this is, this is not a scientific study. This is what I hear from families. But it is a person that can do that. And I've actually had, I've actually had the experience of a hospitalist trying to, to change my drug regime uh, that's built around a transplant because he wanted me to try newer drugs. No thanks. The old ones are working just fine, but my thinking's not impaired. So I think the the hospitalist is a new thing, but it brings me to one other point. I think we need to introduce our person with dementia in a decent amount of detail to our medical providers. I don't think nurses, doctors, hospitalists have a little card in their head that when we say dad has Alzheimer's disease, that they pull that little card out and they understand what that means. So we teach and we have people practice how to introduce dad. Dad has vascular dementia and diabetes. When he wakes up in the middle of the night and he needs to go to the bathroom and the light isn't on, he will fall out of bed and will have an even bigger problem. That's my dad. Or my dad has middle stage dementia and he never recognized that 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 meal under a plastic dome is food. Mm-hmm. recognize that as food and he will become dehydrated and malnourished. You use the example of somebody that needed thickened liquids. We need to introduce our person with dementia in sufficient detail. We, we don't just have to say dad has Alzheimer's as if every medical provider understands what that means and how to support that person well in the hospital. Absolutely. I mean, what you're sharing is so important to so many people. 
Yeah. Uh, I'm sitting here going, wow, that's an interesting concept. You think of introducing somebody as this is my dad, he has dementia. And that's the end of it. But what you're saying just brings a whole breadth of information and understanding to the others. That's, uh, that's if nothing else, that made this whole podcast super worthwhile. <laughs> yeah, and it works. You know, I think it, sure. it helps people uh, connect a little more to the person and the disease. Interestingly, in, in, you know, in, in Australia, in Ireland, uh, other places, there are large initiatives about improving dementia care for people or care of people with dementia in hospital. And a number of them have used stickers or a purple angel on the door or a big yellow sunflower. And what they found is this is a really bad idea because without that personal information, it actually has a boomerang effect and creates more stigma and less care and more fear of the person with dementia. So a medical provider, instead of giving special attention to people with dementia because there's a sticker on the door, a purple sticker on the door to be wary. They're wary. They're afraid. They don't have, right, they don't have the right picture of what it means to be a person with dementia and they get less care. That's a really interesting finding. It is. And it, it also points out the need to have a family member nearby or communication set up on a regular basis. We were lucky enough that we had a nurse assigned to my father-in-law's case in the hospital. And his name was Jason. And he and I were in conversation frequently. And if I saw something that I was concerned about, I could call Jason and he would be an intermediary with the doctors who might dismiss somebody like me they would pay attention to Jason. Or if Jason saw something, he would call me and say, Bobby, how about you take a look at this? We need some more information about that. That was through the VA hospital. I've not talked to anybody who's not involved with the VA who had a situation like that, but it went a long way to keeping dad out of the hospital a lot. Well, so another thing about another major initiative, you know something's important when there is a process in the United States public health world called healthy people. It's a goal setting process for nation, national public health goals. It goes on every 10 years because it takes 10 years generally to change things in public health. There is a goal about reducing preventable hospitalizations of people with dementia. So you know something's important when it rises to that level of strategy and but for COVID, it probably would have gotten a lot more attention as that goal was set in 2020 for 2030. But I think we're coming back to it. Uh, so what do we teach about avoidable hospitalization? Well, we start with what are the major reasons people with dementia end up in the hospital and what can we do about them? And lo and behold, falls is accounts for 13 to 15 percent of hospitalizations of people with dementia. Well, we know a lot about falls. We know that people with dementia have perception problems. They may have a house with poor lighting. They may have clutter or other obstacles. Anywhere in the country, you can find an area agency on aging to teach you falls prevention. So I think it's, it's very accessible knowledge 
there are also most area agencies on aging or elder care services provide home modification. So you can put in no slip tiles, grab bars in the bathroom. These are all preventative aspects. If you think about 15% of hospitalizations are, are because of falls. You can also talk with, if you're sharing care with a provider, such as an adult day healthcare provider or a residential care provider, you can talk to them as the caregiver about what you want to happen if somebody is suspected of having a fall. Trauma is interesting, Let me just, which is not unrelated to falls. Falls are a trauma. Most of the trauma for people with Alzheimer's that ends up in the hospital comes from two sources. Missed connections during transfers. What is a transfer? It's when we help somebody move from chair to bed, bed to table. Uh, missed transfers or trauma resulting from car accidents, not the person with dementia driving, as you may suspect, but as passengers who have forgotten seatbelts. So transfer, you know, there's any number of YouTube and other accessible resources to learn how to do transfers properly. Again, preventable, avoidable hospitalizations. Right. Well, Michael, really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us and our listeners. People can find thoughtfulhospitalization.com on the web. Uh, we're teaching online, which kind of stinks. Uh, but we also have a growing number of community care providers uh, that are providing the workshop. In fact, we're going to be blitzing Tennessee in November. So we're going to be going uh, to a string of adult, like an old traveling salesperson, uh, teaching caregivers about how to thoughtfully deal with hospitalization. And we will definitely post those links to the thoughtful hospitalization on our show website. So people that are listening to the show, they can just go right there and, and get to you. But okay. again, thank you so much for being a guest on this show. Really appreciate it. Well, glad to be helpful and uh, have me back another time. I will definitely be in touch. Okay. Yes. <laughs> All right. You know, I took so many notes, but I think one of the things that came up, first of all, and a lot of people do think about uh, a dementia is, is a memory problem. The fact that it's thinking problems. It's something that I teach people, you know, it's a, it's a devastating brain disease and our brain controls everything. And that includes reasoning and that includes sight and that includes taste. It, it includes everything. What our brain tells us is what we believe. You can find more information about Mike and links to his thoughtful hospitalization website and Facebook page on our show website at rogerthat.show. This has been Roger That. I'm Bobby. And I'm Mike. And we're dedicated to guiding you through the haze of dementia. Bobby and I would love to hear from you, answer any questions you might have, or just find out how you're doing. Please contact us through the Roger That Facebook and Twitter. To find out more about us, head over to rogerthat.show. That's Roger, R-O-D-G-E-R, that dot show. Roger That is produced by Missing Link a media podcast company dedicated to connecting people to intelligent, engaging, and informative content. Also in the Missing Link lineup of podcasts is the Designated Drinker Show, the podcast raising the bar on craft cocktails. Here you meet interesting folks, enjoy boozy banter, and learn how to make craft cocktails from a master. And if you're looking for a whole new way to enjoy theater, check out Between Acts, an immersive audio theater podcast experience. 
Each episode takes you on a spellbinding journey through the works of newfound playwrights, from dramas to comedies and all those in between. Find Missing Link's League of Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcast. Please don't forget to subscribe, download, and review the shows as your review helps our show reach new audiences. To find out more about Missing Link, visit missinglink.company.